This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann, I'm at Otago Polytechnic today, and I am joined by Ron Ball. Kia ora, Ron. Uh, kia ora, kia ora koutou. Uh, kei te mihi a kia koutou mō tēnei wā, uh, ko tēnei wā te reo, um, uh, te wiki o te reo Māori. Kia ora, Sam. I said safe spaces, but was feeling slightly less less safe being back at work. <laughs> yeah, slightly less safe, yeah, but it's good to see the faces and, uh, um, yeah. Make that face-to-face or two-metre face-to-face contact. does make a difference, doesn't it? It does, yep, yep. Lockdown's an interesting time because the work just seems to be more intense when you're doing it on Zoom or, or whatever mode we're doing that on. Less friendly, I suppose. And less time chatting. Mm. Less time having the chance meetings. Really problematic, that. I have to walk around the house chatting to my wife and son and that's, uh, I don't get the same responses as I do at work. Well, they've, prob- they've probably heard your stories over and over again. <laughs> so, how was your lockdown? Yeah, I quite enjoyed lockdown. Um, it's it's a nice time to, to sit back and, and pause and reflect. Um, lockdown last year was was really interesting because there's an element of of of, of fear, uh, where this one sort of felt more like an element of, of containment of of just remembering that if we do the right thing we should come out all right because we've done it before yeah it, it wasn't the, the the going into lockdown was more of a surprise and mm. more immediate mm. but it didn't feel scary no no um the, the first lockdown uh, that, that we had was um, i was actually invited to do a, a radio interview, um, of all things, with um, through the BBC, uh, with a, 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 a journalist from the US somewhere. Um, but they looked at five different countries in the world and their resilience, their expected resilience coming out of lockdown. Um, and, and I mention this because uh, I got to commentate on, on the New Zealand context along with Shemaville Jacob. So. You know, you're in good company here, Sam. <laughs> I presume you listened to what the other people said as well. Oh, no, no. I just, <laughs> just told my own stories. <laughs> so what did you tell them about resilience in New Zealand? Well, it was interesting for me with lockdown being a reflective time. You know, the first one and the second one as well. Thinking, OK, what is this all about? Where are we? What are these these dangers that face us? And where have we been in the past that dictates where we're going in the future? Uh, and like a lot of New Zealanders, and I'm, I won't be 
political in any way, but I was very impressed with um, with, with the government and Jacinda's response to lockdown, um, immediately closing down, and with, with the words of, you know, uh, we're a team of five million rhetoric, I know, but a nice words and a nice, nice ethos, and that whole idea of, of being kind to each other. Um, when I reflected on that and where New Zealand had been in the last, what, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, and some of the major disruptions, social disruptions and political and economic disruptions that we've had. Um, you know, for example, the Christchurch earthquakes, how that stopped the country and it made us think, hold on, who are we? What, what's important to us? And that whole idea of being kind actually came out of that as well. Uh, so, you know, for me, reflecting on disruption, um, reflecting on who we are as a, as a very young country, uh, and looking forward to sort of perhaps who we want to be, what defines us, what is that thing that makes us different. We've certainly got the opportunity from this this reset, this Rahui, whatever it is, to do that, put forward to what we want to be. Do you think we'll take that opportunity? Are you seeing signs of that? Um, interestingly enough, I was I was more confident that we'd take this take the opportunity after the first lockdown. But we pretty quickly um, reverted to some of our bad habits almost immediately. Uh, you know, that we were let outside again. Um, but in saying that as well, change is slow. Um, but reflecting on that, change in the area of social change that we're going through, you know, particularly with reference to this week being Tuikiotere or Māori, that social change that looks at who we are as a bicultural country, that project is, is speeding up. Do you think the COVID has enhanced that? I think it has. Um, I think it has because it's made us sit down and ask us who we are as New Zealand. We're not um, you know, part of, of Fortress Britain anymore. We're not part of, of, of that larger um, economic system. We've, we've I dare say, further removing ourselves from the motherland. Uh, so with that comes that question, well, yeah, who are we and what makes us special, what makes us different from everyone else? And I think that one unique identifier or one unique, two unique things we have, one is landscape in place, and the second is the relationships that we have uh, between a, the First Nations people, if we can use that term, the, the, the Indigenous people, the, the iwi Māori of New Zealand, and everyone else that's arrived, and the uniqueness that comes out of that relationship. So I heard somebody commentating on the radio a week or two ago saying that, that they'd like to see the Prime Minister and um, Director General of Health, actually Bloomfield, using Motorail Maori in the one o'clock press conferences. And I thought, that, yeah, that's a good idea. They should be, because they, they should be making that point of being inclusive. But then I thought, hang on, they might be actually busy keeping us alive. <laughs> and <laughs> this is not a time to be learning a new language if you're, try, if you're trying to make those kinds of decisions. Mm. And, and so I'm a bit torn on that one. Yep. And I, I, I once agree... Um, new language and language acquisition can at times be confusing. It can be it can be confronting. You know, if we can, well, we can say that. 
Um, but it can be confusing and it can dilute the message that's trying to be delivered. However, I would also say that just with a, a bit of swapping out of some key words, and, and she does use some key words at times, Jacinda does use you know, words like aroha, and, you know, but if we, as New Zealanders, I believe within our lexicon, we do have a suite of Māori words that we're familiar with, that if we embed even further and define what those words and those concepts mean for us as individuals within a context, then uh, this could be the exact context that we need to define those words within. So when we're talking about aroha, not just being about love, um, you know, that's, that's one very narrow definition, but mm. that, that, that idea of affinity to people and the caring of and with people. I think that's a that's a nice way of, of subtly refining the words that we're becoming more used to using. And it's very much in the whole be kind message is not... When they first started using it, I think that most people interpreted it as, remember, to, you know, be kind to your neighbours, go and check that your elderly neighbours are okay. Hmm. But as it progressed, I think it became a much more holistic concept along yep. the lines of what you're talking about for, there for Aroha. Mm. that it is much um, and, and it's be kind to yourself as well yep definitely yep yep um, and aroha is, is, is a, an interesting word and a lot of words are interesting well most words are um, but aroha is a very interesting word because the the, the, the word itself talks about the, the aro about a, a, a connection a direction a movement um, and, and that word that word ha being breath so the root of aroha talks about the movement of breath between people. So if we think, you know, we remove that tag love and have that idea of the, the movement of breath between people, we have to breathe in, we have to breathe out together. Um, that, that affection, that affinity, that, that um, mutuality, yeah, is, a, is a, I think a nicer way to think about that word within the context of course, if we keep a two-metre breath between Yeah, although the literal, the literal <laughs> interpretation of that's what we're not doing at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But just understanding that we all, we all breathe together.
definitely working working from home as, as uh, many of us did um, tapping away on the keyboards and you're meeting meeting online and those, uh, those those lovely little square boxes which we sometimes turned off and wandered away and made a cup of tea and come back to <laughs> take the risk they don't say and what do you think about that Ron yeah well yeah luckily I had my bluetooth headphones on so I could <laughs> and, and not while you're going to the loop exactly it's a double-edged sword that one isn't it what work are you doing? Um, well, currently I, I work at the Otago Polytech, um, and my role here is to uh, embed Matauranga Māori, so uh, Māori knowledge, into our curriculum areas, and um, uh, and um, uh, kaupapa Māori principles into our learning environment. Um, so the way I see that is, is is actually just building that idea of biculturalism within the organisation. What does Kaupapa Māori teaching and learning look like? Oh, that's a... That's why I asked it. Yeah. I've just finished my my Masters, which didn't answer that question. Um, But Kaupapa Māori education, I think... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll talk about this, this concept of ako, and this is right or wrong, this, the, you know, the, this, is, this is my thoughts, this is the way that I've seen this thing played out, and we use this term ako quite a bit when we're talking about kaupapa Māori education. Um, and ako is the process of both learning and teaching at the same time, saying this, this stuff happens simultaneously. And sometimes from a, I would suggest from a very narrow and naive perspective, we say that the, um, the learning environment is, is uh, depoliticised, that there's no hierarchy within the learning environment. And I would argue that actually there is. It's a highly politicised zone. Um, and when we start defining these words in such simplistic way, or these concepts in simplistic ways, we lose a lot of the nuance, of course, of what these things are. And, and sort of very briefly, uh, and this is one thing I, I, I have contemplated quite a bit and tried to write about, for me, ARCO is a, is a four-stage process. And when I say it's four stages, it's not necessarily stages, but there are four elements to ARCO. First is around the participants. And the person giving the knowledge 
has to be the appropriate person that understands the context and, and the way the knowledge is used um, um, that is a specialist in that knowledge area which makes sense within a Western perspective but that the person receiving the knowledge has to also be the right person to receive the knowledge so back in the day that person would have been chosen from the young people in the, in the, in the, in the village to receive knowledge and you know one of the tasks that was put to young people was, for example, you know, uh, if someone's going to be a, a, a specialist in gathering food from the sea, the task would be go and get 10 kina. I'm being a wee bit facetious here, plenty of probably other tasks as well, but you know, the whole idea of go and get me 10 kina. The person that came back with the 10 best kina, you know, that, that got them in, in a way that was appropriate was probably the person that would receive knowledge around working with the sea as opposed to the kid that didn't come back because he couldn't swim. Quite simplistic, but you see where I'm going with that. So knowledge wasn't a commodity. It wasn't commodified into a space that we have now, I would argue, within uh, tertiary education, where you pay for the knowledge. If you've got the money to pay, then we'll give it to you. The knowledge was was used as a collective good and was given to um, those individuals that were deemed to be the appropriate people to have that knowledge. The second thing that I think of with a kaupapa Māori approach to um, education and to knowledge transference was around the content. And the content, I would argue, was largely delineated. In a tertiary environment now, we have year one, year two, year three, we have you know semesters, we have weeks, and all the learning stacks on and, and builds on itself in, in a predetermined way. Um, the way I was brought up with that knowledge transference is you are given things that were appropriate for you at that time within the, the, the context that that knowledge was being given, which is the third element. But... Um, so it was a delineation of knowledge, it was a, a breaking down of, of the knowledge into small component parts that was given and re-given and re-given. With myself, my, my poet, my grandfather, had to tell me stories over and over again before I actually got them. But he structured the transference of that content to what he thought was right for me at the time until he saw those eyes go, ah, now I get you. So the, but that that's highly personalised? Highly personalised, yep. yep. Um, the third element to that is the context that the knowledge, knowledge is delivered in, um, both physically but also uh, with the understanding that the, the content has to be applied to context. So, um, you know, growing up, going down to the Titi Islands with, with the old people, with, you know, with the old pole, with the old grandfather, him... Um, giving me little bits of knowledge at any given time related to the tasks that we were, in, we, we were doing at that time, the places, the space, the water, the trees, the you know the other old guy that lived over the hill. Um, all of the the knowledge was contextualised, so it didn't sit in a vacuum outside of the context. And the fourth um, um, element that I consider when I think about Arcor. Um, relates to a, a karakia that one of the other old guys gave me that talked about, you know, when light comes into the world, when knowledge comes into the world, that uh, the people with the knowledge will give it to the learner. But there'll be a time where the learner actually overtakes 
the specialists, where the learner knows more than or grows the knowledge. And that is the time when light comes into the world and when knowledge comes into the world. So for me, that speaks to the whole idea that knowledge isn't something that should be contained or restricted. That the reasons for giving knowledge to an individual, the appropriate content content within an appropriate context was about growing the knowledge so that um, that person that received it grew that for the common good of all not just for the individual who purchased the knowledge but, but for all and their job therefore was to give that knowledge to someone else so that they could grow it so knowledge transference um, and, and uh, knowledge itself isn't static it needs to grow and change and evolve. So the polytechs are being, or have been, merged into one national network, Tipukanga, and the guiding principles of that, enshrined in a document, uh, Tipaitafati, which is very much about equity, partnership, and it's very much about um, the, 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 the priority groups are, are Maori Pacifica and um, the disabled community mm-hmm. with an unspoken I think or an unwritten premise that what's good for Maori is good for the, for the institution so I don't want to focus on the, 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 the negative statistics that Tipa Tafati is, is trying to address but how do we do it so that we change education in a way that's not just changing the icing on what we've already got, when what we really need is a systemic changing of a cake? Mm. Yep, yep. Um, and, and it is interesting because, you know, just that, 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 um, that rebaking of the cake, it does feel like we're using the same cake tin and we're still using the same flour we're change, we, we are changing the icing, but, you know, which is the analogy, of course, that you use. Um, but my argument is that actually, and, and it goes back to the start of this conversation, in New Zealand we've got a unique perspective on a way of doing things. Just now we're replicating that, waving my fingers in the air here, that Western perspective. Now, I'm not saying there's anything completely inherently wrong with a Western perspective that comes from uh, you know, a, a certain canon of knowledge transference. There's a definite advantage on focusing on that, but leveraging off to articulate our own, um, uh, I suppose, cultural narrative, our own ways of doing it and seeing things and actually trying something different. Um, I do have politics around, and I've got to be very careful with this, um, around what I would consider a deficit model approach to Māori education Um, and so far as yes we need to focus on educational attainments for those those communities who aren't doing very well in education but and you know once again this might get some some emails into your show um, but a lot of those conditions are actually determined by social political economic conditions not by um, cultural, etc. However, there is one way that we can address equity across the board if we revisit the structures and the way that we transfer knowledge and the knowledge that we transfer. 
that reflect a, a, a New Zealand way of doing things, a bicultural way of doing things. Now, when I talk about biculturalism, I'm always very careful with that word because I acknowledge that New Zealand is a multicultural society. But once again, going back to um, some words I, I said before, that in New Zealand there are only two things that are unique about this place. One is the landscape, that beautiful place that we live in, and the second is the indigenous, the iwi Māori people that are here. When I'm talking bicultural, I'm suggesting we take the best of the uniqueness of this place, of how we respond to landscape and how we respond to people. We build on both of those narratives together um, and find... I'm placing my hands together here in a small model that I've, um, it's 10 years of my work, it's just my fingers crossed together, um, that talks about that cultural third space that allows that iwi Māori unique New Zealand way of doing things alongside those new, those new paradigms that are here and says actually there's something special that we do here that's different from everyone else in the world that talks about our team of five million, that talks about the sharing of breath together. Um, the other models perhaps aren't right for us. What do we do? How do we look into the future? How do we become more agile with change uh, you know, post-COVID or, or post where we are now? What does it actually mean for us to be you know, to be unique down the bottom of the South Island? What, what is it? Who are we? can see how I could see what to do if I was teaching in environmental education it would be obvious and I think we're going a long way in the right direction in work-based learning because um, it's it's very much about notions of self-determination um, and and we are very much trying to help the the learner achieve what they want to achieve rather than what we think that they they need to know But I'm. What do you do? I, I I presume in your role you end up talking to groups of lecturers who they're doing their yearly review of their programs or whatever, and one of the things they need to do is to address partnership. Mm. And if they're teaching first year programming, what do you want them to do? Well, that's, you know, I'm always faced with these questions about programming, about accounting, about these very technical uh, subjects that, that are based on, I suppose, ideas that, that you could consider being outside a Māori way of thinking, and I, I suppose they are. So within this and within the, um, uh, you know, within my role, when I introduce those two things about embedding iwi Māori knowledge into programs, I would say there's not a hell of a lot we can add into programming. When I'm talking about the way that we do things that um, our kaupapa Māori approach to education, there's a lot that we can do within our classroom context that responds to the needs of the individuals within that context and, and appeals to their ways of learning. So um, um, shifting that system, that knowledge transference system, thinking about that, you know, concepts of ako, not using that as completely as I understand it because that was right within the context that I come from, but thinking what does it actually mean to work with an individual who wants that knowledge? What knowledge do they need at any given point in time? 
how do we contextualise that knowledge um, so that so that it fits with the context that they the, the multiple contexts that they live in, um, but also how do we allow them to grow themselves and that knowledge to a place where they want it to go and where it's good for the larger community. Um, so yeah, completely you know with with very technical um, issues around programming around you know we just did our brewing course recently and I had a look at over that and I, I had a few ideas but I think it's it's the way that we deliver the way that we do things the ethos that we take into the into the classroom of as you say working with part of the the merger into Tupukanga is that existing programs such as the the computing degrees around the country you know there's 17 different computing degrees within a couple of years that will be one degree so there's a big move to rethink how those things are and, and the, I use the computing as an example because I know what's going on there um, I think we've managed to move people from it being a, a contest of which degree is best and everybody else loses to actually coming at it from first principles and saying what does computing need to not computing education but what does computing need to do as a profession to better address the treaty to, to better to, to address it, um, inequity because if we look at I mean I'm, I'm totally aware of this with my master's learners as part of the consultation that they have to do for their their master study, one of the questions in that is: Are there any? Uh, does is this you know is this work being research being done by Maori? But also, are there any Maori participants? Yeah. And more often than not, their answer is they look around the, their workmates and go, nope. And I'm and I've you know, and then is it, is it therefore is it of interest to Maori? And my argument is that they should say to that second one: Well, no, there aren't any Maori participants. And that's of interest. Mm. That's part of the problem that we need to be considering as a profession is to how do we address that? And then once we can figure that out, then computing education can say, right, how can we deliver on that promise? So while there might not be, and it might turn out that we still need to teach first year programming in in the way that looks pretty much like it did look like, Mm. but in the context of a profession that's trying to change itself. In partnership, mm. yep, yep, and it's it's interesting because we, for years, we've asked that question around the treaty. You know, how do how do we, what does a treaty mean within any given profession? And I think it's time to move away from from that question per se. The treaty is important because it was a foundational document of who we are as New Zealanders living collectively within this space, um, but. I would suggest that we're in a space now where we should be asking the question of what does it mean to be a responsive treaty partner? So what does it mean to actually walk alongside and work with the people within our communities, those, those people that, that live here, those families of, of peoples that are in this, in this place? And you know, by asking that question of what does it mean to be a responsive treaty partner then opens up that, um, once again I would argue, um, that potential of moving away from consultation, because uh, consultation is so 2020, of, of consulting with Māori to, to find out what their aspirations are, into a space of, of co-design. 
of co-designing and collaboration. So sitting, working with our communities and saying, what is it that we need to go forward together, working on stuff together? Not just that, that question of, you know, will this have an impact upon you? And if not, I can't see your faces. So that's sweet as. It's like, actually, if we're all working in these communities together, in this space together, how do we define and refine the subject matter and the and the outcomes of what we're doing to best suit our individual communities and our individual place. is the um, wings. Papaki parero is flapping your wings. on the wind, yeah? Kafa Papa ke pare rau re re I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars and your beloved universes. I really hope, wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique, and here making things better. Thank you. So you might be able to hear 
that I'm speaking to you from my heart's home workplace, Orokanui Eco Sanctuary. I'm surrounded by billions and squillions and trillions of life forms here. And some of them that you might be able to hear singing and fluttering. Tui, bellbird, kaka. And for me, being back here again is such a huge relief. And I feel like half of myself has returned to me. Such a huge part of my life, being part of the eco-sanctuary. And it's wonderful to be back here. So I'm sitting with you now on a bench in the forest and I'm by a bird feeder. So there's lots and lots of beautiful tuis puffing themselves up and displaying their magnificence, drinking sugar water from the sugar water bottles, supplementary food in place of natural nectar sources. And of course, because if we were birds that could fly, but didn't migrate like the Tui and the Bellbird. We couldn't store fat, so we'd be flying around, constantly feeding, feeding all day. And our heart would be beating much faster than our human heart. Our blood would be warmer than our human blood. And of course we would have to be constantly looking for that nourishment. Something that I love watching is how the birds move so fast between all the branches of the trees in the forest. And as I've been returning to my heart's home today and walking along the tracks, restocking all the hand sanitizer stations, I've been swooped down upon by numerous kaka. And a kaka came right up to me to see me because obviously they haven't seen people for so long, except our rangers. So it was wonderful to be greeted so closely. And they are, they move and react so fast. Of course their eyes, they have hundreds of thousands of more rods and cones than we have in our eyes. They see all this light and colour that we can't. And they're built to react so fast. And of course their song, their beautiful song, two voice boxes. 75% of their brain processing that sound and vision. Really beautiful, beautiful, beautiful relations of ours, the birds. So I really hope for you in this time, you're able to feel a sense of returning to spaces that are really meaningful to you. And of course, this doesn't have to be an external space. This can be an internal space. A state of being that is really nourishing and nurturing for you, that you're able to find your way back to whether that's accessing that stillness and that peace within you, that inner sanctuary, or whether that's allowing yourself to let go of some of the the heaviness and the stress of the last few weeks, finding a, a sense of presence and gratitude for where we are right here, right now. Certainly for me, being back immersed in the living world, helps me to feel released from the stress and strain of moving through lockdown level three, now level two. And of course, as a sensory being, I believe all of us need these soothing nature opportunities 
that we can connect with our living toolkit as we have evolved to do. And of course, because this is so much the benefit of our design, I think it soothes us, brings us back to that peace. So I really hope for you today, you're able to find a beautiful space that you really enjoy internally and externally. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Ron Bull. Ron, you you're on the show a while ago, and I can't remember what your answers were. I don't know if you can either. But I'm going to ask some of the same questions. What changes do you think we've seen in society that are going to stick and that you hope will stick over this COVID experience? Um... I think that you know being being locked locked up here in New Zealand and there's no better place to be locked up and we're starting to once again fall in love with our place again you know we're visiting those 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 places that we haven't been to for a long time or have ever been to you know places like Rakiura Fiordland you know those those far fun places that um, are who who we are as people I'm a firm believer that place um, informs identity, which then informs practice. So um, the first thing for me is, is lockdown is allowing us to re-engage with our place, which makes us ask that question, who are these people that live within this place? What's our, our collective identity? And asking those questions, what makes us different from the UK, the US, Spain, uh, Italy, um, Australia in particular? Um, but what makes us different from those from from those places? And for me, it's the way that we do things and the way that we react to place, our ethos around how we live within this place and how we live together. Um, and I think that's emerging now as, as as being the prime difference or the prime mover that's coming out of the space that we're in. So, what's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Biggest success I've had. Oh, I don't know if I've had any at all. That's a really good question. I'll I'll tell you what, I'll answer that in in a bit of a... uh, The biggest success that I've had in the last few years has been around sports coaching. And um, being able to to sort of relate to young men um, at, at, at hopefully at their own level and to encourage them to be the best people that they can be. Uh, I coached a team this year and um, we, we decided we weren't going to play the game for the wooden spoon, uh, which, you know, which is a, uh, a decision that the boys made. But they ended that season smiling and and and, and with a closeness within that group that encouraged me about the future New Zealand that we can live in. So what's your superpower? Oh, superpower. Uh, I think one of them would be my major superpower would probably the ability to eat probably six or seven kinna uh, at one go. <laughs> A lot of people can't even handle one row, but I can I can do whole kinna. Um, I'd like to think my superpower was... Or is, is is the ability to make people feel comfortable uh, within within contexts? Yeah, not much of a superpower. I'd... But these are the things that make society go. Mm. And if we can understand those things that people 
even if they say, oh, it's not really a superpower. No, it's not superpower. It's not laser eyes. Mm. But that's the point. Yeah. This is something that everybody can learn. This is something that everybody can 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 use to make our society better. And, and I'll tell you what, that, that, that superpower that, that I just spoke of was actually one that I was inherited from my mother. Um, and she was a, an extraordinarily humble um, um, kaitahu woman uh, living down in Coal Lake Bay and Invercargill and those areas there that just did what she thought was right for and with people. And actually, we, we played a song earlier on, that song, uh, Haere Mai, Everything is Kaupai. When my mum was, was, was leaving this place, she wrote a list of, of songs that she wanted to play to her tangi, and that was the number one song, and that encapsulated who she was. That whole idea of, of, of you know, come on and you're welcome, and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. What challenge or opportunity are you looking forward to in the next year or two? Uh, I'm looking forward to the, well, the challenges that Te Puking is bringing. Um, and one of the major challenges for me is how do we actually articulate our own regional identity within this national body? So I, I, I completely get the need to centralise, I suppose, um, within, within the tertiary sector and to rationalise, but actually we're doing some stuff within this place, within Otago, the Waitaki River, um, that's unique to this place that adds to who we are. So at the same time as, as understanding that national identity of who we are as New Zealanders, is what does it actually mean for us down here south of that Waitaki River? And as we know, it all gets weird when we go over that river there. <laughs> and lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Yeah, well, advice. I'd hate to be giving advice just in case it's wrong, but my, yeah, my advice should be um, just uh, enjoy who you are, enjoy who you're with, and uh, just remember um, that everything will be okay. Can't I? <laughs> everything. Up the back of an alley There's a pokey little pub That's called the raking of the moon I can't for the life of me Remember its location But be certain not to miss it If you're looking for a tune I was there a night myself On a Monday or a Thursday With a head full of directions From a man I didn't know Who had said I might be fortunate Enough to find a session So I bundled up me fiddle And I thought I'd have a go And I was there Sitting in the middle of the patch and the bow Running the bones with me fiddle And we played just like It was going out of fashion As we gave the tunes a thrashing With the passion The session The do and that there was the chorus. After pounding on the pavement for an hour and a quarter, I eventually found the place that I was looking for. I could tell it was the session by the way the place was rocking. The music you could hear at least a dozen blocks or more. Nobody objected when I asked if I could enter, though a fella knocked my hat off, that stood upon his toe. There's saw a little gap just big enough to squeeze a bum in, so I had me own upon it. I rosined up me bow, and I was there, sitting in the middle of the patio in the barn. The bones and me fiddle, and we played just like it was going out of fashion as we gave the tunes a thrashing with the passion of the session to flee. Thank you, that was great. <laughs> then
there were singers and musicians from the nether end of everywhere with harps and hurdy-gurdies and a clatter of castanets an ethnomusicologist from london in the corner beating with them with the squeaking of his portable cassettes a choir of eighty a cappella in the ladies' lavatory A brass gang of accordions squeezed around the door They even had a section for the bones in the basement You could tell when they were bashing the rumble through the floor And I was there, sitting in the middle of the patio with the bones The bones and me fiddle and we played just like It was going out of fashion as we gave the tunes a thrashing with the passion The session of the yuckle diddly yuckle diddly yuckle diddly I like the last one what a fabulous festivity, a feast of famous faces Anybody who was anybody, show the body there The Celtic literati, the Isle of Man to Brittany Were lifting up their drinking arms and letting down their Bewhiskered balladeers and real recording superstars A pack of fickle pipers kept the dancers on their toes And also one who looked a lot to me like Donald Lunny And another face I recognised but couldn't pick the nose and I was there, sitting in the middle of the banjo And the bow running the bones with me fiddle And we played just like it was going out of fashion As we gave the tunes a thrashing with the passion The session to the ukulele to the ukulele to the ukulele You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world, brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. We listened to Daphne Walker, then Pure Rahua, by Harini Melbourne, that's Marcus Turner's version of it, and this is Marcus Turner's The Session. And I was there, sitting in the middle of the power and the banjo and the bones of me fiddled and we played just like it was going out of fashion as we gave the tune to thrashing with the passion. The session of the deucle, the deucle, title, deucle, title, title. I'm Samuel Mann at Otago Polytechnic today, and I have been joined by Ron Gould. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.